0: Welcome to What Your GP Doesn't Tell You, the podcast for both doctors and patients with me, Liz Tucker. The idea of staying fit, young and healthy for as long as possible, I think is something many of us would love to achieve. But just how possible is it? Today, I'm talking to Dr. Robert Lufkin, who has a particular academic focus on the science of longevity. And Rob says the aim is not to live forever or live longer when we're frail and ill, but to extend our healthy lifespan. When we age, the odds of us getting a range of degenerative diseases or life-threatening illnesses increase. So the science of anti-aging is really all about discovering why this happens and what we can do to slow or stop these pathways. Rob reveals the role that he believes lifestyle, diet and exercise can play and goes on to discuss drugs such as rapamycin that some people, including him, are now taking in the hope they can keep their bodies healthier for longer. So exactly what is the evidence that we can stave off the perils of ageing? I'll be back with Rob's interview in a moment to find out more. But first, a brief request from me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to find out more, you can sign up to my Substack account, which is liztucker.substack.com, go to my podcast website at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com, and follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker. And if you'd like to financially support the podcast, I'd really appreciate it. A huge amount of work goes into both the research and production of this. So even a small amount a month makes a huge difference. And you can provide support at patreon.com slash you or via my website, which, as I mentioned, is you.com. Many thanks. Now back to the interview with Rob. Dr. Robert Lufkin is currently Adjunct Clinical Professor of Radiology at the USC Keck School of Medicine. He is also Chief of Metabolic Imaging at a large medical network in Southern California. Previously, Rob has been President of the Society of Magnetic Resonance Imaging and President of the American Society of Head and Neck Radiology. In addition to being a practicing physician, is author of over 200 peer-reviewed scientific papers and 14 books. Here's Rob's interview. So, Rob, thanks so much for joining the podcast today.
1: Well, Liz, it's great to be here. I'm so excited about talking with you.
0: So, Rob, if we try to prevent aging, are we actually trying to medicalize what's really a natural process?
1: Well, that's a good question. I'm a physician, right? By training. So my job is to fight the natural processes. So it's true that many chronic diseases are associated with aging, but I believe that they're not necessary for aging, or at least we can slow their development. And people talk about increasing lifespan and increasing health span. And health span is, of course, the healthy years of our lives versus lifespan is just the total years of our lives. So I think it's appropriate to talk about increasing health span. Nobody wants to live 10 extra years if it's in a nursing home. So I believe it is appropriate to slow down the chronic diseases that make us infirm and make us appear aged before we die.
0: So what we're talking about is increasing the years of healthy life.
1: Correct. Otherwise, it's a non starter, I think. Yeah.
0: So, why is it, Rob, that as we age, we become more likely to get a range of diseases from heart disease, cancer to Alzheimer's?
1: That's a great question. It's interesting because there's very little consensus about what causes aging or what longevity is. Talk to colleagues in the field who've been studying this their whole lives, and there's really not an agreement on. What we're dealing with, I think, there are two theories that I like to highlight. If I could, the first one is probably the widest accepted theory of what causes aging and the diseases of aging, sort of the wear and tear hypothesis, which you know seems self-evident. You know, my car wears out eventually; the tires wear out, whatever. We see things wear out all around us, and that certainly for some phenotypes of aging, things like wrinkles maybe, maybe gray hair, our joints getting tired. This appears to us as if we're wearing out and it certainly does play a role in aging. But it's interesting if you look at the phenotypes of aging that I mentioned, you know, gray hair, baldness, menopause, dental problems, although these are associated with aging, they don't really determine longevity. In other words, nobody dies of gray hair, nobody dies of wrinkles or anything like that. So, what do people die of? Well, it's no secret the common things people die of, and there are about six diseases that you, me, and everyone we've ever met, over 90% of them will die of these diseases. And they include things like cancer, cardiovascular disease, heart attack and stroke, Alzheimer's disease. So, if these are the diseases that determine longevity, And if the wear and tear model is what's behind it all, then these diseases should show signs of just wearing out. The problem is when a person has a heart attack, it's not that their heart wears out and just stops beating. Rather, they have hypertrophy of the blood vessels in the heart for the usual cause of a heart attack, which is narrowing of the blood vessels and limited blood flow to the heart. Or if it's in the brain, it's a stroke. So there's actually a hypertrophy, a cellular growth within the lining of the blood vessels. Take cancer. Cancer is the archetypical hyperplasia disease. When people get cancer, it's not that their bodies wear out. It's actually their cells grow at a very rapid rate. Basically, the cells are sort of multiplying
0: out of control in cancer.
1: Exactly, exactly. And then finally, I'll just end up with Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's is sort of the ultimate failure of the medical profession after, you know, decades of research and literally untold financial resources being applied to it. There's not even an agreement of what causes Alzheimer's disease, you know, the beta amyloid and the the plaques. It's no longer considered to be fundamental by many experts in this. Alzheimer's disease, because of its association with things like type 2 diabetes and inflammation and other toxins, Alzheimer's disease is believed to be also a hypertrophy. In other words, the brain is overreacting to things. When people die of Alzheimer's disease, it's not like their brain wears out. That's not why they get dementia, but there's actually a a hyperplasia.
0: Haven't some people talked about Alzheimer's being more accurately defined as type 3 diabetes?
1: Absolutely, because of its strong association with insulin resistance, which is type 2 diabetes, and its strong association with glucose metabolism. In fact, the anti-diabetes diet, which removes carbohydrates, also known as a ketogenic diet, which has been used for years for seizures, when applied to Alzheimer's patients, a significant percentage, not all, but a significant percentage of patients actually (laughs) report improvement and memory changes. and. For a certain subtype of Alzheimer's disease patients, this can slow it down or even reverse it. So, yeah. So, back to the theories of longevity, we talked about wear and tear, but then it doesn't explain why we die, you know, what determines our longevity. Instead, the chronic diseases that determine our longevity are all driven by this hyperplasia. So, there's a new theory of aging. It was created by Misha Blaglusconi from New York. A scientist there working on rapamycin and other drugs, and other people have gotten behind this. It's called antagonistic pleiotropy. It's genetic programs that were very useful when we're young. Cellular hyperplasia is useful when we're young because it allows our bodies to grow. You know, our bones to get longer, our you know, our muscles to get bigger, our brains to get bigger. The idea is that these programs that are valuable in youth and valuable growing up to about age 20, above age 20, when we activate those programs, the hyperplasia programs, they actually drive aging and ultimately the chronic diseases of aging that will ultimately determine our longevity. A sort of a novel idea that longevity is not really just things wearing out, but it's actually a special program that's turned on in our body that causes cells to grow very rapidly.
0: So, Rob, basically, there are specific pathways we want to slow down.
1: Yeah, there are pathways that they they didn't really evolve to create aging, but they're they're pathways that served us well in our youth when our bodies were developing that. When these pathways are turned on later on in life, they actually drive aging and death, longevity. And
0: one of the things that seems harmful, Rob, is senescence, a process by which a cell ages and permanently stops dividing, but doesn't die. Can you explain why that's a problem?
1: Yeah, senescence, it's when cells grow up and they stop dividing but they're still stimulated to grow and they can produce different types of inflammatory products and these inflammatory products can be harmful they drive the inflammation they drive the insulin resistance that ultimately drives the, the aging so one of the targets for longevity we're really in an amazing time now there's been more breakthroughs in longevity in the last 10 years than in the last 150 years so Things are coming left and right very fast, but attacking these senescent cells by a class of therapies called senolytics, killing the senescent cells, is one avenue that people are are looking at. These include prescription drugs, primarily desatinib, which is an FDA-approved drug for a type of lung fibrosis. Some people are using an off-label as a longevity drug. But also there's over-the-counter supplements like fisetin and quercetin are also senolytics at some level, and they can be used for this.
0: These cells remain active on our bodies, and they can release harmful substances over time.
1: That's correct.
0: And another pathway that seems key is mTOR, which is a protein that plays an important role in the function of cells. How's that connected with aging?
1: I love mTOR. <laughs> One of my favorite topics. It's arguably the single most important biological protein that's ever, ever discovered. It's present in all life, all the way from yeast, all the way to human beings. Yet it wasn't discovered almost until the end of the 20th century in 1999. It was really characterized You can think of it as as a biological switch, a master switch that's so important for life that it was kept in every single cell over billions of years of evolution. It does one thing, really. It senses the presence of nutrients. And if food is available, then mTOR turns on, and guess what? Tells the cell to grow, tells the cell to grow hyperplasia, this sort of thing, which is Beneficial at certain points of life. And then if nutrients are not present, mTOR turns the other way and tells the cell not to grow and do something called autophagy, which means it salvages proteins and things and makes do with what it has. Interestingly, when food is available, when mTOR is turned on and hyperplasia and growth occurs, another thing occurs, and that's inflammation. That's because When nutrients are coming into the the cell or the body, they're foreign materials. So, inflammation is a normal, healthy response. So, basically, mTOR switches between two things. And you think about it, that's the most important thing a cell does is survive. In other words, if food is present, it should grow, it should multiply. And if food is not present, it should shut down and basically conserve resources. So, it's a basic, basic survival switch. No matter how you think of longevity and aging, or the, two, the two theories I mentioned at least, either way, turning mTOR off is going to increase longevity because turning mTOR on will cause hypertrophy and inflammation. Both of those things by the hypertrophy model or the inflammation model drive aging and shorten longevity. Turning it off, if you believe in the wear and tear model, repair will solve the wear and tear on the cell. So it's thought that human beings, you know, 100,000 years ago would have mTOR turned on when food is available and then turned off for large periods of time when we're hunting and gathering, that sort of thing, and then turned back on. Well, what happened about 10,000 years ago, of course, which Gerald Diamond and Many other authors have said the worst thing that ever happened to humanity was the agricultural revolution, which meant that food was increasingly available. And then 200 years ago, we got refrigeration, which meant that food became even more available. And then about 50 years ago, we got massive ultra-processed junk food, which means that we're eating all the time. And the the nutrients that mTOR senses is basically glucose, oxygens, some branch chain amino acids, and and insulin. All those things are turned on by eating. And arguably, modern man has mTOR turned on all the time into this growth mode, this inflammation mode. And that's that's as evidenced by inflammation increases with aging. So the hypothesis is that turning down mTOR into the repair mode in adults will actually be beneficial.
0: And that's interesting, Rob, because fasting also causes autophagy, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, mTOR is a nutrient-sensing protein. So when you fast, you're turning mTOR off. So you're turning mTOR into the autophagy mode and you're turning off growth and inflammation. So that's one of the reasons fasting is so beneficial because of its effects on mTOR and many other things.
0: Amongst all the doctors that I interview, I think there's a considerable difference of opinion. But one thing that does seem to be shared is the view that neither sugar nor refined carbs are a good thing for the human body.
1: Yeah, it senses glucose. And glucose is increased by dietary glucose or by refined carbohydrates. So a low-carbohydrate diet will turn mTOR off. You can turn mTOR off with lifestyle, like we talked about with fasting or with uh, low carbohydrate diets and other things, as well as, you know, stress, exercise, other things. But there's one thing that will turn mTOR off reliably. And that's a drug that was discovered named rapamycin. It was discovered in the 1960s in Rapa Nui, Easter Island in the soil there and it led to the discovery of mTOR because mTOR is named as the mechanistic target of rapamycin. One thing rapamycin does is it turns mTOR into that favorable autophagy mode.
0: So what results do we have to support the idea that rapamycin might be useful in developing longevity?
1: So in the mouse model, and there's a mouse model for baldness and gray hair. You give rapamycin to these mice The hair actually regrows, the follicles increase, and the hair turns from gray to black. And on my website, I have the references for these if you want. How about skin, wrinkles? this is actually a human study. This is a prospective blinded study where volunteers put rapamycin on one hand and then something else on another hand, on, on cream that was blinded. And then six months later, eight months later, they had skin biopsies of each hand. They actually showed dramatic differences in the rapamycin-treated hands versus the other ones. In other words, layer 7 collagen, the wrinkles were less, and it's very dramatic. You know, in the future, we may have rapamycin cream, and actually, 12 months ago, the FDA just approved rapamycin cream, not for aging and wrinkles, but for a disease of the skin, but it may have off-label use for that. Similarly, for the hair, we may see rapamycin shampoo. Other things, teeth, teeth are a reliable sign of aging. You know, the old person, their teeth fall out. Periodontal disease increases with aging. Well, if you give rapamycin to mice with periodontal disease, the periodontal disease will reverse. It's pretty striking. And now the group at University of Washington with Matt Kaberline and Dr. On are doing this in humans, looking at periodontal disease as a marker of aging, treating with rapamycin. What else? Another phenotype, we mentioned uh, ovarian failure, also known as menopause. That's a disease of aging that all, all women get. When they give rapamycin in the animal model, the mouse model of fertility, rapamycin reliably lengthens the fertile period of the female mice and also increases the number of their pups. And this is now being applied to women, humans for this type of thing.
0: And does turning mTOR off have any impact on the big diseases you mentioned, such as Alzheimer's, cancer, and cardiovascular disease?
1: So cardiovascular disease is, as we mentioned, it's, it's called, caused by a hyperplasia of the blood vessels or vascular diseases. And if it happens to the heart and limits the blood to the heart, it's called a heart attack. And if it happens to the brain, it's called a stroke. What happens if we turn mTOR down for cardiovascular disease? Is there any effect? Well, actually, there's a dramatic effect. The main treatment for heart attacks these days is stents, which are coils of wire, essentially braided wire that's put inside the blood vessel. The blood vessels, which is narrowed from the hyperplasia, is then re expanded and the stent is put in there. Well, what happens is this hyperplasia continues, the disease continues throughout the rest of the body and even the stent. But rapamycin is now FDA-approved because it stops the atherosclerosis from reoccurring in the stent. It slows down cardiovascular disease.
0: And Rob, is this all to do with inhibiting the mTOR pathway, or are there other things that rapamycin is doing too?
1: That's a great question. I mean, there, there are a lot of longevity drugs, but rapamycin is one of the few drugs that's called a clean drug because it really, it just targets mTOR. There isn't a lot of collateral damage with it, whereas like metformin, people still can't agree how metformin works. But as far as we know, rapamycin works specifically on mTOR. That doesn't mean we're even close to beginning to understand how everything works, but it appears that when we give rapamycin, we are affecting mTOR. With cancer, the number one killer in transplant patients for transplants of the heart within the first five years is not rejection of the heart, but it's actually a second cancer because the cancer risks are so high. And it's shown when you give rapamycin as a immune suppressant for the heart, for these heart transplants, the number of their cancers drop dramatically. But above and beyond that, there are eight cancers now that rapamycin is FDA-approved as a primary treatment, such as metastatic renal cell carcinoma, which is the number one kidney cancer. Uh, Rapamycin is FDA-approved to treat that. So it works on cancer. And then the last thing is Alzheimer's disease. How is that related to cancer or blood vessel disease? It's a completely different thing. Why should rapamycin have any effect on that? But if somehow these diseases of longevity are driven by hyperplasia or repair, then rapamycin should have an effect. And sure enough, uh, there's a mouse model for Alzheimer's disease called Alzheimer's disease. When rapamycin is given to the Alzheimer's model, their memory improves back to the normal levels. And as of now, the University of Texas is now doing human trials with rapamycin for Alzheimer's patients. So that's the diseases of longevity.
0: But do we know if this actually translates into longer life?
1: It's great we, you know, make people look prettier without wrinkles and all that stuff. Uh, Maybe it's great that we have these effects on these, these diseases that determine longevity. But is there any evidence that shows turning down mTOR actually changes longevity itself? Does it change the amount of time any animal lives? And with humans, sadly, there's no there's no data on that really, just because of the the logistics. My favorite longevity metric I like to go to is called the ITP, and I don't know if your other guests have talked about that before. It's uh it's a U.S. government funded program called the Interventions Testing Program. It's run out of the NIH, and it's great. They take a short-lived animal, a mouse, and they take a group of mice, they live about three years, and they divide them in half. They let one group just live their normal lives, and the other group, they'll give them an intervention. And the public can actually specify the intervention. Over the years, they've tested green tea extract, they've tested statins, they've tested resveratrol. You know, there's a whole list of things. It's on their website if you Google ITP. And interestingly, uh, none of those worked. None of them had any effect on the lifespan of the mice. In other words, they didn't live any longer. So, Rob, did they find any drug that made a difference? Actually, a few drugs did work. A drug called acarbose, which is a uh, diabetic drug. It blocks the uptake of carbohydrates (laughs) from the bowel. So you can still eat the carbohydrates. You just don't get the harmful effects. Acarbose had a small effect. Aspirin had a small effect only for males. What about rapamycin? Well, the single most powerful effect of any drug tested reliably over males and females tested every single time has been rapamycin. It knocks it out of the park as far as survival. And the interesting thing was in the first study they did the rapamycin and the ITP, they mixed up on the drug. Usually they give the drugs for the entire life of the animal, which is kind of artificial. I mean, it won't help you or me. So with the rapamycin, the first trial, for technical reasons, they wound up not starting the rapamycin until the mice were effectively 60 or 70 years of age. And they gave the rapamycin even late in life, and they had that dramatic effect. So it appears there's evidence that rapamycin... Turning down mTOR with rapamycin can improve the phenotypes of aging, can decrease these chronic diseases that determine our longevity. And at least in the animal model, there's evidence that it does prolong longevity. And it's not just mice. It's also happened with yeast and flatworms and fruit flies. On up the animal kingdom. And Matt Caberline is doing it with companion dogs, interestingly, now in a prospective study, giving rapamycin to let your dog live another 20% longer.
0: I thought that there was a difference in the impact of rapamycin in males and females.
1: Some of the drugs, like alpha estradiol or aspirin, tested in the ITP, had a dramatic difference between males and females, you know, in this mouse model. In rapamycin, the the difference between males and females is much, much less. It seems to be variable. Having said that, I have to say nobody really knows, you know, even the correct dose for humans who are, as of now, starting to take this off-label. There are many humans taking rapamycin for possible longevity benefits, but really nobody really knows. And Before I leave with the idea that rapamycin is the only way to turn mTOR down, as you mentioned, there are lifestyle choices that we make that can also turn mTOR down. The diet, the the fasting turns down mTOR, low-carbohydrate ketogenic diets turn down mTOR, turning down insulin through stress reduction, through exercise, through sleep hygiene, quality and quantity of sleep also turn down insulin, which will turn down mTOR. So all of the things that make up a healthy lifestyle will also have effects about turning down mTOR. So the question is, well, I can either like change everything in my life and turn everything upside down, or I can just take a pill. Which one shall I do?
0: Isn't that typical of a kind of Western approach that we don't want the hassle, we just want a quick fix? Isn't that how we got into a lot of the problems with our diet to begin with?
1: Yeah, and the problem is, part of it is our hubris, and we barely understand mTOR. So there's some cautionary tales here about just taking the pill. One, lifestyle has a lot of other benefits above and beyond longevity and other health benefits that we don't really understand, but there are many different ones. It's a network of effects. So what's the problem with taking rapamycin? It's a relatively safe drug, at least taking at the doses we recommend and the dosing schedule. It's a prescription drug, so you have a physician recommend it. But the problem is, going back to the ITP, somebody took rapamycin and they did the ITP model with the mice and they combined it with metformin. And what happened was the mice lived longer than they did with rapamycin or metformin, which had no effect at all by itself. And then about 12 months ago, another paper was published from the ITP. That was with rapamycin plus a acarbose, the other drug we talked about. And when you combine those, it's a huge effect, greater than rapamycin by itself or acarbose by itself. So the idea is not that, oh, okay, now I need rapamycin acarbose. The message here is that we really don't have a clue what's going on, that a lot more work needs to be done in this area. I know one thing for certain, uh, aging is 100% fatal and we're all facing it. So if you want to cover your bets at this point, like I do at least, (laughs) I would do longevity and pick the best lifestyle you can, your intermittent fasting, your low carb, your sleep, exercise, all those things. And then maybe take the rapamycin or the acarbose as well. But I wouldn't depend on a pill for it (laughs) right now.
0: Do you take rapamycin? I do. From the animal research, what do we think is the ideal age somebody should start taking it?
1: That's a great question. Like we've talked about, if we think about mTOR as turning between this beneficial hypertrophy state and this beneficial repair state, hypertrophy is going to be more beneficial when the animal's growing. Before the animal reaches maturity, you maybe don't want to artificially turn mTOR down.
0: Because you may need those mTOR pathways going full speed ahead to begin with.
1: That's right. The reality is nobody knows because there's no way to actually measure mTOR function. This is just people thinking and you know, as best we can from the science as we read it. So to your question, generally most people don't recommend rapamycin until well into adulthood. Some people are saying, you know, age 50, some people are saying age 40. It just depends on how aggressive you want to be, but it is totally the wild west and nobody really, really knows. And some physicians will not prescribe rapamycin. It's poorly understood in general by the medical profession because its first FDA approval in 1999, I think, rapamycin was approved as an immune suppressant for renal cell transplants, which if you tell your doctor you want to take an immune suppressant and you're otherwise healthy, they'll run screaming from the room.
0: And of course, it carries a black box warning because of that. So I think to a lot of people, if you say, and it's got a black box warning, which is the most severe safety warning, that will put a lot of people off.
1: Yeah, it's a really good point. If this is a drug that causes immune suppression, what the heck am I doing taking it, hoping (laughs) that I get some longevity benefit? When it's taken every day at a daily dose, which is the dosing regimen for renal cell transplants, you do get an immune suppression effect, and it's very effective to this day for renal cell transplants and other transplants. The dosing schedule for longevity is to take it once a week. You pulse rapamycin up and then it's cleared from the body in a short amount of time, a couple days basically. Is there any evidence for this? Yeah, Joan Manick did a study with a rapamycin analog, essentially rapamycin with a company she was working with in 2016, it was published, and they basically took older people. And they used the dosing regimen of rapamycin once a week, and they did it to improve their immune function. And rapamycin, when given by this longevity regimen, actually improved immune function at this weekly dose. All the evidence so far, the people that are taking it on this weekly regimen, they're not seeing any, you know, any immune suppression effects that you get with the daily dose. But that's out there, and that is a reality with this uh, medicine.
0: I think I did hear that people taking rapamycin should be carefully monitored for skin and subcutaneous bacterial infections. Do you think that's a concern?
1: Theoretically, it's a concern if you think about immune function. Although the dosing regimen we have, the weekly regimen shouldn't affect that. But talking to Alan Green, who's a physician in New York, with probably the largest clinical experience of rapamycin for longevity. He has thousands of patients, healthy patients taking it for longevity. He says really the only side effect he's seen, and it's not significant, is something called aphthous ulcers, which are a little like cold sores in your mouth that people can get when their immune function is changing. And I've never experienced them. It's very rare in patients I talk to, but that's the one side effect that people notice. But you certainly want to be on alert for infections anyway.
0: One paper suggested An increasing incidence of diabetes and in some cancer patients, potentially high doses of rapamycin might cause hypoglycemia. Do you think there's any evidence for that?
1: One of the reasons it's a prescription medicine is that doctors, when they start patients on rapamycin, they check their glucose levels to make sure they're not going high. But In my experience and what I've read, it's not a big problem for most people. At all. In fact, if we go back to the underlying mechanisms of insulin resistance and diabetes and the common root causes of all these, this idea of turning mTOR down to the autophagy mode, away from hypertrophy, away from inflammation, you can imagine a mechanism where glucose metabolism would actually be improved at some point.
0: Now, presumably the drug, if it works, it's working by slowing the aging process down. But if, say, I take it when I'm 80, it's not going to reverse the aging process.
1: That's a really important question. As we mentioned, the, in the ITP for the longevity work from the animals, that the famous one in 2016, the rapamycin, was given late in life. And you know how late and how much it tapers off after that remain to be determined. The other question you ask is a very nuanced one and an important one, is that is, this longevity drug or lifestyle, let's say I already have gray hair, I've got wrinkles or whatever. I'm already have the ravages of aging, whether it's from hypertrophy or wear and tear. Will turning down mTOR just slow that down or will it actually reverse it? And the answer is nobody really knows, but if we drill down in the studies that I just mentioned on the phenotypes of aging, for example, in the periodontal disease, It actually reverses the periodontal disease in the animal model compared to the age-matched ones. So it slows it and can reverse it. You know, in the baldness rats, the hair actually was growing back in some of them. So for some things, it does reverse them. There's a whole list of effects of aging. Hearing loss is another problem of aging. You know, 60% of 60-year-olds have hearing loss and three-quarters of 70-year-olds have hearing loss related to aging giving rapamycin to turn down mTOR actually has effects on the hair cells in the animal model. In this case, it slows down the hearing loss. It doesn't reverse it. So there are different effects in different situations. And the bottom line is we're just beginning to investigate this.
0: And I guess memory loss is one of the other key things one thinks of in aging. Yes.
1: Yes. Back to the Alzheimer's, the mouse model for memory loss, they test the cognition of these mice and they were able to restore it in the Alzheimer's model back to the age matched non Alzheimer's mice. In humans, the University of Texas is the one trial I'm aware of now that is looking at rapamycin specifically for Alzheimer's disease. But, you know, we're seeing results with ketogenic diets, we're seeing results with a number of things. Dale Bredesen is doing some great work in that area.
0: A lot of people in later life report, for example, that short-term memory loss
1: increases. I'm going to push back on that a little bit. In my opinion, I think the Alzheimer's disease, just like diabetes, probably like cancer, and like cardiovascular disease, at some point it's diagnosed in the medical profession, let's say Alzheimer's, when I have cognitive impairment at a certain point, I get click, okay, you've got Alzheimer's disease or you have mild cognitive impairment. I think the evidence is pretty compelling now that these chronic diseases actually are present for years to decades before I get the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, that old person who can't find their keys is probably on the road to Alzheimer's disease in some form or an early form, if not Alzheimer's disease, other neurodegeneration. I want to push back that normal aging is not a uh, memory loss necessarily. But for example, a lot of women post-menopause
0: talk about the fact that they think they have an increased loss in memory.
1: Yeah, that's true. And the bottom line is memory is is so complex nobody really understands how it works. I mean, we we image the hippocampus and we show it shrinking down in Alzheimer's disease, that part of the brain that controls memory and and we show it getting bigger when we do lifestyle to increase BDNF, brain derived neurotrophic factor, and we can actually show it growing back again, but the actual mechanisms of memory, we don't really have a clue. But certainly, yeah, what you describe is true, postmenopausal, and memory changes and the hormones, absolutely. Even vitamin D. Vitamin D deficiency is a common thing that's easily tested for, and it's associated with cognitive impairment. And there are patients walking around with Alzheimer's diagnosis who get their vitamin D checked, and they basically go back to normal when they start vitamin D supplements. So there are many, many causes, and it's a very complex system.
0: So how does a patient decide, well, I could take this new drug, rapamycin, but it's quite new, so there's not a huge safety profile in terms of the number of people who have taken it, because this podcast is a lot about drug safety, against, if I don't do anything, the aging process will happen as the aging process does. It's quite difficult. There's an awful lot of unknowns here.
1: Yeah. Part of it's a personal philosophy, because this is not medical recommendation. It's not any medical society is recommending rapamycin it's definitely off label it's about longevity and you know there's not a lot of people uh at least in mainstream medicine pushing longevity what
0: do your colleagues think about your enthusiasm for rapamycin
1: the open minded ones i mean the, the evidence it is what it is you know i have no personal interest in rapamycin other than it's it's fascinating but if you tell me tomorrow that you know, sugar Coca Cola will improve my lifespan and health span better than rapamycin. I will order it by the case. I want to follow the evidence. Rapamycin, it's been used by millions of people. Rapamycin actually has a very safe profile. There's one person took took 100 times the daily longevity dose. I don't know if it was a suicide or it was just a mistake, but basically they went in the emergency room and Nothing happened, they went home. I mean, unlike Tylenol, which is, you know, acetaminophen, which is available over the counter, it's possible to fatally overdose with a very low dose with toxic liver failure. So rapamycin is a safe drug that way. But it it really depends on the individual and their philosophy about how they want to live their lives and everything.
0: So how many people do you estimate in the States are taking rapamycin to stave off aging?
1: That's a good question. We're trying to put together different types of patient registries because it's really important to get the information to track that. I mentioned, you know, one physician who has over 2000 patients just on rapamycin, but I think there's just a handful of physicians that are prescribing it now. The number's growing all the time, but it, it's still definitely, it's nowhere near like metformin was popular like 20 years ago in Silicon Valley and all the, tech people were taking it for longevity rapamycin is sort of the gifted child now the drug of choice for longevity it seems but it's not a huge number of people that are taking it
0: so if people want to find out more about these approaches where's the best place to go
1: the best place to go is the primary literature and you know PubMed and search for studies where they've done these. You can look at the ITP, that's in animal models. There aren't a lot of human studies, although there are more and more all the time. But the best place to go is the primary literature, if you can.
0: I suppose the difficulty is, let's say I decide I want to take rapamycin. There's probably a handful of doctors in the States that will prescribe it. Here in the UK, I think it's even harder. And I imagine in Europe, similarly. So that therefore means if people can't get a doctor to prescribe it, the risk is they start taking it on their own without any medical supervision.
1: Yeah. What's happening increasingly in the United States is there are telemedicine programs. So you can essentially go over the internet and you interact with a physician through a Zoom call and you send in your labs. And so you can, at least through the US, get access to a physician no matter how remote you are. I assume some are available in the UK and Europe, or hopefully they will be available soon. But that's one solution uh, for people who really want, want to get these things. But yeah, I don't recommend ordering it from India and taking it on your own for a number of reasons.
0: One of the points you made was the value of taking it once a week rather than once a day. And does the dosage vary depending on your male, female, weight, age?
1: That's a great question, and nobody knows the dosage. So, I mean, people have settled on a a dose about 6 to 10 milligrams per week uh, as a dose based on Joan Mannix's paper and other papers in humans, but some people are taking higher doses. There's not like, you can't take your blood levels for it necessarily reliably. I mean, it's, it's not an not a easy way to do it. You can't measure mTOR activity. You can't measure longevity. So what's your endpoint? So most people are just doing it sort of by the seat of their pants based on what the literature is in some of the controlled trials. That's where it's, uh, that's where it's around right now.
0: So Rob, how long have you been taking it for?
1: I've been taking it about two years.
0: Has it made you feel any different during the time you've been taking it?
1: The problem with longevity drugs, or the problem with anything, is that over the last two years, I've dramatically changed my lifestyle. Started fasting. I eat one meal a day. I'm energized, and I changed my sleep habits. I've changed the things I eat. So there's so many different moving parts. You know, I'd love to say, "Wow, that rapamycin really works," but. At the end of the day, it might just be, you know, riding my bike 10 miles a day. That's what nothing else matters, you know, or it might be a combination of everything together.
0: Or it might be a placebo effect, I suppose.
1: Or a placebo, of course. Yes, yes, even more.
0: (laughs) So, Rob, how have you changed your sleeping? We've mentioned diet and fasting, but what have you done differently about your sleeping?
1: Well, I'm a physician, so I used to carry a pager around. I used to be on call all the time. I'd be carry a pager 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and I thought it made me tough. You know, I'd get woken up in the middle of the night, and I thought I was helping my patients. I was being a hero. And I realized now that I was actually making myself sick, and I was potentially harming my patients by doing that sort of erratic sleep schedule. So I started sleeping more like eight hours. How do I know if I get enough sleep? If I need an alarm clock to wake up, I probably haven't slept enough. So I I turn off the alarm clock most days. And then uh, sleep quality, are you opening your mouth? Are you snoring? There are different metrics you can do. I paid attention to sleep quality and sleep quantity. Did it help? I don't know. (laughs) Well, no one wants to be treated by a sleep-deprived doctor. Exactly. So final
0: question, Rob. Where would you like to see anti-aging medicine in the next 10 years?
1: Well, there are amazing things coming down the pipeline, stuff that we haven't even talked about, like partial epigenetic reprogramming that is just mind-blowing, that has a potential to change everything.
0: Can you explain what partial epigenetics is?
1: Yeah, basically, all our cells are the same in the body, all the DNA is the same, but the cells differentiate. This differentiation is epigenetic modification of the cells. And then as we get older, there are epigenetic changes that occur because of our lifestyle and the drugs we take. So people have found a way to rewind the epigenome back to a more youthful state or even back to stem cells. In fact, Shinji Yamanaka won the Nobel Prize for his Yamanaka factors, which are the chemicals that allow us to rewind the cells back and make them more youthful. And people are experimenting with that now. And it's, very promising in animal models. And there are even some hints of human possibility as well. But I guess the bottom line, I guess, to leave everybody is that this is such an amazing time in our knowledge of longevity and aging. You know, just buckle up. It's going to be a wild ride. And I think the best is yet to come.
0: Well, I look forward to seeing what happens next. Thanks so much, Rob, for sparing the time to talk today. Really appreciate it.
1: Uh, This has been great, Liz. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks so much. Cheerio.
1: All right. Cheerio. Bye-bye.
0: Bye. Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of the podcast. And a reminder, you can follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker and sign up to the podcast mailing list at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. Many thanks for listening. Bye for now.